I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Dr. Salva Gordy looked at the radioactive smear that had been Detroit. Then he looked down at the boiling anthill. Why not? He thought excitedly. Why not? That's next on the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast, with at least one lost vintage sci-fi story in every episode. Thank you for listening to the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast, And thanks for your reviews and ratings. Special thanks to our new listeners in the Canary Islands, Iceland, Finland, South Africa, the Czech Republic, and New Zealand. If we haven't mentioned your city, state, or country, send an email to scott at lostsci-fi.com and please let us know where you're from. We've added a 50-book bundle of audiobooks to lostsci-fi.com 27 hours of vintage sci-fi. All 27 hours for only $9.88 when you use the promo code PODCAST. Buy it from anywhere in the world and the price will automatically be adjusted for your currency. You've heard of the man who had everything. Well, today's author is the man who did everything. He accomplished far more in his life than most Yet he was a high school dropout. Born in November 1919 in New York, as is often the case, this science fiction author started out as a sci-fi fan. Along with Isaac Asimov, C.M. Kornbluth, and others, he formed a group known as the Futurians, which broke off from the Greater New York Science Fiction Club. The author once said, and I quote, We changed clubs the way Detroit changes tail fins. Every year had a new one, and last year's was junk. He would form lasting relationships with members of the group, and many of them rose to sci-fi success. 
Frederick Pohl's work was first published in 1937, and he began his career as a literary agent that same year. He was Isaac Asimov's agent, the only one he ever had. Then he started editing not one, but two magazines, Astonishing Stories and Super Science Stories. He was only 20. His stories often appeared in these magazines, but never under his own name. Stories he wrote with C.M. Kornbluth were often credited to S.D. Gottesman or Scott Mariner. Other stories were credited to Paul Dennis Levon or, as is the case with today's story, James McCrae. Then came World War II. Pohl served as an Army weatherman in Italy. After the war, he wrote advertising copy, became a literary agent again, and started writing a lot, quite often with his good friend C.M. Kornbluth. He would become an editor for two magazines again. I guess one wasn't enough. This time, Galaxy and If Worlds of Science Fiction. Pohl won more than his share of awards, a Hugo for Best Magazine in 1966, 1967, and 1968. In 1976, he won the Nebula Award given by the group now known as the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America. He won another Nebula the next year, and a Hugo in 1978. There are simply too many awards to mention them all. He wrote more than 65 novels, more than 150 short stories, and he kept writing. His last collaborative effort was 2008's The Last Theorem with Arthur C. Clarke, and he won his last Hugo in 2010. Frederick Pohl died in September 2013 at the age of 93. Let's go back in time more than 72 years ago to the pages of Planet Stories magazine and listen to the words from a sci-fi superstar. Let the Ants Try by Frederick Pohl. Gordy survived the three-hour war, even though Detroit didn't. He was on his way to Washington with his blueprints and models in his bag when the bomb struck. He had left his wife behind in the city, and not even a trace of her body was ever found. The children, of course, weren't as lucky as that. Their summer camp was less than 20 miles away, and unfortunately in the direction of the prevailing wind. But they were not in any pain until the last few days of the month they had left to live. Gordy managed to fight his way back through the snarled, frantic airline controls to them. Even though he knew they would certainly die of radiation sickness, and they suspected it, there was still a whole blessed week of companionship before the pain got too bad. That was about all the companionship Gordy had for the whole year of 1960. He came back to Detroit as soon as the radioactivity had died down. He had nowhere else to go. He found a house on the outskirts of the city, and tried to locate someone to buy it from. But the emergency administration laughed at him. Move in if you're crazy enough to stay. When Gordy thought about it all, it occurred to him that he was in a sort of state of shock. 
his fine-trained mind almost stopped functioning. He ate and slept, and when it grew cold, he shivered and built fires, and that was all. The War Department wrote him two or three times, and finally, a government man came around to ask what had happened to the things that Gordy had promised to bring to Washington. But he looked queerly at the pink, hairless mice that fed unmolested in the filthy kitchen, and he stood a careful distance away from Gordy's hairy face and torn clothes. He said, The secretary sent me here, Mr. Gordy. He takes a personal interest in your discovery. Gordy shook his head. The secretary is dead, he said. They were all killed when Washington went. There's a new secretary, the man explained. He puffed on his cigarette and tossed it into the patch Gordy was scrabbling into a truck garden. Arnold Cavanaugh, he knows a great deal about you, and he told me, if Salva Gordy has a weapon, we must have it. Our strength has been shattered. Tell Gordy we need his help. Gordy crossed his hands like a lean Buddha. I haven't got a weapon, he said. You have something that can be used as a weapon. You wrote to Washington before the war came and said, The war is over, said Salva Gordy. The government man sighed and tried again, but in the end he went away. He never came back. The thing, Gordy thought, was undoubtedly written off as a crackpot idea after the man made his report. It was exactly that kind of a discovery anyhow. It was May when John DeTerry appeared. Gordy was spading his garden. Give me something to eat said the voice behind Gordy's back. Salva Gordy turned around and saw the small, dirty man who spoke. He rubbed his mouth with the back of his hand. You'll have to work for it, he said. All right, the newcomer set down his pack. My name is John DeTerry. I used to live here in Detroit. Salva Gordy said, so did I. Gordy fed the man and accepted a cigarette from him after they had eaten. The first puffs made him lightheaded. It had been that long since he'd smoked. And through the smoke, he looked at John DeTerry amiably enough. Company would be all right, he thought. The pink mice had been company of a sort. But it turned out that the mutation that made them hairless had also given them an appetite for meat. And after the morning when he had awakened to find tiny tooth marks in his leg, He'd had to destroy them, and there had been no other animal since. Nothing but the ants. Are you going to stay? Gordy asked. DeTerry said, if I can. What's your name? When Gordy told him, some of the animal look went out of his eyes, and wonder took its place. Dr. Salva Gordy? He asked. Mathematics and physics in Pasadena? Yes, I used to teach at Pasadena. And I studied there. John DeTerry rubbed absently at his ruined clothes. That was a long time ago. You didn't know me. I majored in biology. But I knew you. Gordy stood up and carefully put out the stub of his cigarette. It was too long ago, he said. I hardly remember. Shall we work in the garden now? Together they sweated in the spring sunlight that afternoon and Gordy discovered that what had been hard work for one man 
went quickly enough for two. They worked clear to the edge of the plot before the sun reached the horizon. John DeTerry stopped and leaned on his spade, panting. He gestured to the rank growth beyond Gordy's patch. We can make a bigger garden, he said. Clear out that truck and plant more food. We might even... He stopped. Gordy was shaking his head. You can't clear it out, said Gordy. It's rank stuff, a sort of crabgrass with a particularly tough root. I can't even cut it. It's all around here, and it's spreading. DeTerry grimaced. Mutation? I think so. And look. Gordy beckoned to the other man and led him to the very edge of the cleared area. He bent down, picked up something red and wriggling between his thumb and forefinger. DeTerry took it from his hand. Another mutation? He brought the thing close to his eyes. It's almost like an ant, he said. Except, well, the thorax is all wrong, and it's soft-bodied. He fell silent, examining the thing. He said something under his breath and threw the insect from him. You wouldn't have a microscope, I suppose. No, and yet that thing is hard to believe. It's an ant but it doesn't seem to have a tracheal breathing system at all. It's something different. Everything's different, Gordy said. He pointed to a couple of abandoned rows. I had carrots there. At least I thought they were carrots. When I tried to eat them, they made me sick. He sighed heavily. Humanity has had its chance, John, he said. The atomic bomb wasn't enough. We had to turn everything into a weapon. Even I, I made a weapon out of something that had nothing to do with war. And our weapons have blown up in our faces. DeTerry grinned. Maybe the ants will do better. It's their turn now. I wish it were. Gordy stirred earth over the boiling entrance to an ant hole and watched the insects in their consternation. They're too small, I'm afraid. Why, no, these ants are different, Dr. Gordy. Insects have always been small because their breathing system is so poor. But these are mutated. I think, I think they actually have lungs. They could grow, Dr. Gordy. And if ants were the size of men, they'd rule the world. Lunged ants. Gordy's eyes gleamed. Perhaps they will rule the world, John. Perhaps when the human race finally blows itself up once and for all. DeTerry shook his head and looked down again at his tattered, filthy clothes. The next blow-up is the last blow-up, he said. The ants come too late, by millions and millions of years. He picked up his spade. I'm hungry again, Dr. Gordy, he said. They went back to the house, and without conversation, they ate. Gordy was preoccupied, and DeTerry was too new in the household to force him to talk. It was sundown when they had finished, and Gordy moved slowly to light a lamp. Then he stopped. It's your first night, John, he said. Come down cellar. We'll start the generator and have real electric lights in your honor. DeTerry followed the older man down a flight of stairs, groping in the dark. By candlelight, they worked over a gasoline generator. It was stiff from disuse. But once it started, it ran cleanly. 
I salvaged it from my own, Gordy explained. The generator, and that. He swept an arm toward a corner of the basement. I told you I invented a weapon, he added. That's it. DeTerry looked. It was as much like a cage as anything, he thought. The height of a man, and almost cubicle. What does it do? he asked. For the first time in months, Salva Gordy smiled. I can't tell you in English, he said, and I doubt that you speak mathematics. The closest I can come is to say that it displaces temporal coordinates. Is that gibberish? It is, said DeTerry. What does it do? Well, the War Department had a name for it, a name they borrowed from H.G. Wells. They called it a time machine. He met DeTerry's shocked, bewildered stare calmly. A time machine, he repeated. You see, John, we can give the ants a chance after all, if you like. Fourteen hours later, they stepped into the cage, its batteries charged again, and its strange motor whining. And forty million years earlier, they stepped out onto quaking, humid soil. Gordy felt himself trembling, and with an effort managed to stop. No dinosaurs or saber-toothed tigers in sight, he reported. Not for a long time yet, DeTerry agreed. Then, my lord, he looked around him with his mouth wide open. There was no wind, and the air was warm and wet. Large trees were clustered quite thickly around them, or what looked like trees. DeTerry decided they were rather some sort of soft-stem ferns or fungi. Overhead was deep cloud. Gordy shivered. Give me the ants, he ordered. Silently, DeTerry handed them over. Gordy poked a hole in the soft earth with his finger and carefully tilted the flask, dropped one of the ant queens he had unearthed in the backyard. From her belly hung a slimy mass of eggs. A few yards away, it should have been farther, he thought, but he was afraid to get too far from DeTerry and the machine. He made another hole and repeated the process. There were eight queens. When the eighth was buried, he flung the bottle away and came back to DeTerry. That's it, he said. DeTerry exhaled. His solemn face cracked in a sudden, embarrassed smile. I... I guess I feel like God, he said. Good Lord, Dr. Gordy, talk about your great moments in history. This is all of them. I've been thinking about it, and the only event I can remember that measures up is the flood. Not even that. We've created a race. If they survive, we have. Gordy wiped a drop of condensed moisture off the side of his time machine and puffed. I wonder how they'll get along with mankind, he said. They were silent for a moment, considering. From somewhere in the fern jungle came a raucous animal cry. Both men looked up in quick apprehension, but moments passed and the animal did not appear. Finally, DeTerry said, Maybe we'd better go back. All right. Stiffly, they climbed into the closet-sized interior of the time machine. Gordy stood with his hand on the control wheel, thinking about the ants. Assuming that they survived, 
assuming that in 40 million years they grew larger and developed brains, what would happen? Would men be able to live in peace with them? Would it, might it not make men brothers, joined against an alien race? Might this thing prevent human war? And his thoughts took an insane leap. Could it have prevented the war that destroyed Gordy's family? Beside him, Deterry stirred restlessly. Gordy jumped and turned the wheel and was in the dark mathematical vortex, which might have been a fourth dimension. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. They stopped the machine in the middle of a city. But the city was not Detroit. It was not a human city at all. The machine was at rest in a narrow street, half blocking it. Around them towered conical metal structures, some of them a hundred feet high. There were vehicles moving in the street, one coming toward them and stopping. Dr. Gordy, Terry whispered, do you see them? Salva Gordy swallowed. I see them, he said. He stepped out of the time machine and stood waiting to greet the race to which he had given life. For these were the children of ants in the three-wheeled vehicle. Behind the transparent windshield, he could see them clearly. Deterry was standing close behind him now, and Gordy could feel the younger man's body shaking. They're ugly things, Gordy said mildly. Ugly? They're filthy. The ant-like creatures were as big as a man, but hard-looking and as obnoxious as black beetles. Their eyes, Gordy saw with surprise, had mutated more than their bodies. For instead of faceted insect eyes, they possessed iris, cornea, and pupil, not round or vertical like a cat's eyes, or horizontal like a horse's eyes, but irregular and blotchy. But they seemed like vertebrates' eyes and they were strange and unnatural in the parchment blackness of an ant's bulged head. Gordy stepped forward, and simultaneously the ants came out of their vehicle. For a moment they faced each other, the humans and the ants, silently. What do I do now? Gordy asked Deterry over his shoulder. Deterry laughed or gasped. Gordy wasn't sure. Talk to them he said. What else is there to do? Gordy swallowed. 
He resolutely did not attempt to speak in English to these creatures, knowing as surely as he knew his name that English, and probably any other language involving sound, would be incomprehensible to them. But he found himself smiling pacifically to them, and that was, of course, as bad. The things had no expressions of their own that he could see, and certainly they would have no precedent to help interpret a human smile. Gordy raised his hand in the semantically sound gesture of peace and waited to see what the insects would do. They did nothing. Gordy bit his lip and, feeling idiotic, bowed stiffly to the ants. The ants did nothing, Deterry said from behind. Try talking to them, Dr. Gordy. That's silly, Gordy said. They can't hear. But it was no sillier than anything else. Irritably, but making the words very clear, he said, We are friends. The ants did nothing. They just stood there, with the unwinking, pupiled eyes fixed on Gordy. They didn't shift from foot to foot as a human might, or scratch themselves, or even show the small movement of human breathing. They just stood there. Oh, for heaven's sake, said to Terry. Here, let me try. He stepped in front of Gordy and faced the ant things. He pointed for himself. I am human, he said. Mammalian. He pointed to the ants. You are insects. That, he pointed to the time machine, took us to the past where we made it possible for you to exist. He waited for reaction, but there wasn't any. Deterry clicked his tongue and began again. He pointed to the tapering metal structures. This is your city, he said. Gordy, listening to him, felt the hopelessness of the effort. Something disturbed the thin hairs at the back of his skull, and he reached absently to smooth them down. His hand encountered something hard and inanimate, not cold, but like spongy wood, without temperature at all. He turned around. Behind them were half a dozen larger ants. Drones, he thought. Or did ants have drones? John, he said softly. And the inefficient, fragile-looking pincer that had touched him clamped his shoulder. There was no strength to it, he thought at once, until he moved, instinctively, to get away. And then a thousand sharp serrations slipped through the cloth of his coat and into the skin. It was like catching oneself on a cluster of tiny fish hooks. He shouted, John, watch out! Deterry, bending low for the purpose of pointing at the caterpillar treads of the ant vehicle, straightened up, startled. He turned to run and was caught in a step. Gordy heard him yell, but Gordy had troubles of his own and could spare no further attention for Deterry. When two of the ants had him, Gordy stopped struggling. He felt warm blood roll down his arm, and the pain was like being flayed. From where he hung between the ants, he could see the first two, still standing before their vehicle, still motionless. There was a sour reek in his nostrils, and he traced it to the ants that held him, 
and wondered if he smelled as bad to them. The two smaller ants abruptly stirred and moved forward rapidly on eight thin legs to the time machine. Gordy's captors turned and followed them, and for the first time since the scuffle, he saw DeTerry. The younger man was hanging limp from the lifted forelegs of a single ant, with two more standing guard beside. There was pulsing blood from a wound on DeTerry's neck. Unconscious, Gordy thought mechanically, and turned his head to watch the ants at the machine. It was a disappointing sight. They merely stood there, and no one moved. Then Gordy heard DeTerry grunt and swear weakly. How are you, John? he called. DeTerry grimaced. Not very good. What happened? Gordy shook his head and sought for words to answer. But the two ants turned in unison from the time machine and glided toward DeTerry, and Gordy's words died in his throat. Delicately, one of them extended a foreleg to touch DeTerry's chest. Gordy saw it coming. John! he shrieked. And then it was all over, and DeTerry's scream was harsh in his ear, and he turned his head away. Dimly, from the corner of his eye, he could see the saw-like claws moving up and down, but there was no life left in DeTerry to protest. Salva Gordy sat against a wall and looked at the ants who were looking at him. If it hadn't been for that which was done to DeTerry, he thought, there would really be nothing to complain about. It was true that the ants had given him none of the comforts that humanity lavishes on even its criminals, but they had fed him and allowed him to sleep, when it suited their convenience, of course, and there were small signs that they were interested in his comfort in their fashion. When the pulpy mush they first offered him came up thirty minutes later, his multi-legged hosts brought him a variety of foods, of which he was able to swallow some fairly palatable fruits. He was housed in a warm room, and if it had neither chairs or windows, Gordy thought, that was only because ants had no use for these themselves, and he couldn't ask for them. That was the big drawback, he thought, that and the memory of John DeTerry. He squirmed on the hard floor until his shoulder blades found a new spot to prop themselves against and stared again at the committee of ants who had come to see him. They were working an angular thing that looked like a camera. At least, it had a glittering something that might be a lens. Gordy stared into it suddenly. The sour reek was in his nostrils again. Gordy admitted to himself that things hadn't worked out just as he had planned. Deep under the surface of his mind, just now beginning to come out where he could see it, there had been a furtive hope. He had hoped that the rise of the ants with the help he had given them would aid and speed the rise of mankind. For hatred, Gordy knew, started in the recoil from things that were different. A man's first enemy is his family, for he sees them first. But he sides with them against the families across the way. And still his neighbors are allies against the ghettos and Harlems of his town. And his town, to him, is the heart of the nation. 
and his nation commands life and death in war. For Gordy, there had been a buried hope that a separate race would make a whipping boy for the passions of humanity, and that, if there were struggle, it would not be between man and man, but between the humans and the ants. There had been this buried hope, but the hope was denied. For the ants simply had not allowed man to rise. The ants put up their camera-like machine, and Gordy looked up in expectation. Half a dozen of them left, and two stayed on. One was the smallest creature with a bangle on the foreleg, which seemed to be his personal jailer. The other, a stranger to Gordy, as far as he could tell. The two ants stood motionless for a period of time that Gordy found tedious. He changed his position and lay on the floor and thought of sleeping. But sleep would not come. There was no evading the knowledge that he had wiped out his own race, annihilated them by preventing them from birth forty million years before his own time. He was like no other murderer since Cain, Gordy thought, and wondered that he felt no blood on his hands. There was a signal that he could not perceive, and his guardian ant came forward to him, nudged him outward from the wall. He moved as he was directed, out the low exit hole, he had to navigate it on hands and knees, and down a corridor to the bright day outside. The light set Gordy blinking. Half blind, he followed the bangled ant across a square to a conical shed. More ants were waiting there circled around a litter of metal parts. Gordy recognized them at once. It was his time machine, stripped piece by piece. After a moment, the ant nudged him again, impatiently, and Gordy understood what they wanted. They had taken the machine apart for study, and they wanted it put together again. Pleased with the prospect of something to do with his fingers and his brain, Gordy grinned and reached for the curious ant-made tools. He ate four times and slept once, never moving from the neighborhood of the cone-shaped shed. And then he was finished. Gordy stepped back. It's all yours, he said proudly. It'll take you anywhere, a present from humanity to you. The ants were very silent. Gordy looked at them and saw that they were drone ants in the group, all still as statues. Hey, he said in startlement, unthinking. And then the needle-jawed ant claw took him from behind. Gordy had a moment of nausea, and then terror and hatred swept it away. Loose of the needles that laced his skin, he struggled and kicked against the creatures that held him. One arm came free, leaving goblets of flesh behind and his heavy shod foot plunged into a pulpy eye. The ant made a whistling, gasping sound and stood erect on four hairy legs. Gordy felt himself jerked a dozen feet into the air, then flung free in the wild, silent agony of the ant. He crashed into the ground, cowering away from the staggering monster. Sobbing, he pushed himself to his feet. The machine was behind him, he turned and blundered into it a step ahead of the other ants and spun the wheel. A hollow insect leg 
detached from the ant that had been closest to him, was flopping about on the floor of the machine. It had been that close. Gordy stopped the machine where it had started, on the same quivering primordial bog, and lay crouched over the controls for a long time before he moved. He had made a mistake, he and Terry. There weren't any doubts left at all. And there was. There might be a way to right it. He looked out at the coal-measure forest. The fern trees were not the fern trees he had seen before. The machine had been moved in space. But the time, he knew, was identically the same. Trust the machine for that. He thought, I gave the world to the ants right here. I can take it back. I can find the ants I buried and crush them underfoot. Or intercept myself before I bury them. He got out of the machine, suddenly panicky. Urgency squinted his eyes as he peered around him. Death had been very close in the ant city. The reaction still left Gordy limp. And was he safe here? He remembered the violent animal scream he had heard before and shuddered at the thought of furnishing a casual meal to some dinosaur while the ant queens lived safely to produce their horrid young. A gleam of metal through the fern trees made his heart leap. Burnished metal here could mean but one thing, the machine. Around a clump of fern trees, their bases covered with thick club mosses, he ran and saw the machine ahead. He raced toward it, then came to a sudden stop, slipping on the damp ground. For there were two machines in sight. The farther machine was his own, and through the screening mosses he could see two figures standing in it, his own and Terry's. But the nearer was a larger machine and a strange design. And from it came a hastening mob, not a mob of men, but of black insect shapes racing toward him. Of course, thought Gordy as he turned hopelessly to run. Of course, the ants had infinite time to work in. Time enough to build a machine after the pattern of his own, and time to realize what they had to do to him to ensure their own race safety. Gordy stumbled, and the first of the black things was upon him. As his panicky lungs filled with air for the last time, Gordy knew what animal had screamed in the depths of the coal-measure forest. Let the Ants Try by Frederick Pohl in 1936, Pohl and around a dozen other sci-fi enthusiasts gathered in the back room of a bar in Philadelphia for what many regard as the world's first science fiction convention. Next week on the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast, they open the ruins to tourists at a dollar a head, but they reckon without the old Martians. Thanks for listening. And we hope you'll join us next week on the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast with at least one lost vintage sci-fi short story in every episode.